My name is Jim Derrick, and in the space that normally is reserved for chapters, we are going to have a series of programs focusing on substance use disorder and mental health issues. We're going to do that through a series of programs with the SAFE Coalition. So here to kick us off is my friend, co-host and collaborator and creator, Ann Bergen. Welcome, in. Oh, thanks, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. This is so important. Welcome to Safe Coalition Confronting Our Crisis. I'm Ann Bergen, co-host of this series of programs, joined by Jim Derrick, who is the creator of these programs and also a guiding force of the Safe Coalition. The Safe Coalition's mission is to provide support in so many ways to those individuals and their families living with the challenges and sometimes gut-wrenching consequences of the epidemic of substance use disorder. Right now, as we deal with the enormous challenges of a pandemic, the Safe Coalition is more important now than ever in providing that support and guidance for our families. I'm gonna ask Jim Derrick to introduce our guests today who will share their advice, wisdom, and compassion. Jim, Thanks. take it away. Thank you, Ann. And uh, for those of you watching, know that this is the first of our televised Zoom. Um, <laughs> so if, if we're doing things <laughs> that aren't TV friendly, it's because we're just not used to it. Today, we are really <laughs> fortunate to have two people that are instrumental in the Safe Coalition's success to date and um, really changed the landscape for people suffering from substance use disorder and mental health uh, disorders in our communities. And the first is the founder and now newly minted executive director, my friend, Jennifer Knight. Welcome, Jen. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Also with us today is a detective, school resource officer, and someone who focuses in the area of mindfulness as it relates to both community policing and also members of our community, which is the SAFE Coalition. And, and you're also a member of our board of directors, Michelle Palladini. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Thrilled to be here and sharing the important work that all of us are doing here at the Safe Coalition. Awesome. Thanks so much for the time. So, Anne, I thought what we might do is um, ask Jen to give an overview of where the Safe Coalition is today, now some five and a half years after its founding, and uh, bring us up to speed. There's been a, a lot of changes, mm -hmm. Jen, and a lot of exciting things happening. Sure. So the Safe Coalition, you know, five and a half years ago, really started out as a, a small group of folks who were dedicated to providing resources to those who are impacted by substance use. And we really focused on the opioid epidemic. Um, as the years have gone on, um, and most recently what we're seeing, um, certainly the opioid epidemic is still active in our community. However, we're seeing new trends. And so really that's a focus on marijuana and vape use. Um, as well as education and support for those um, who are our middle school, high school, and college-age youth. So right now what the coalition is really focused on is still providing that level of resources for families and those who are impacted by substance use when it has to do with opioids. That means supporting folks getting into detoxes and rehabs and wrapping around the family and providing guidance and support. And then we're also providing a level of support for, for younger folks 
we're providing education in schools. We partner with many schools in our community. We have support groups for adolescents, support groups for parents, and we're really providing a layer of education around marijuana, the adolescent brain, and how to manage and understand this vaping culture that many of our adolescents are active in right now. Right. Jen, um, one of the reasons, to, not to interrupt, but um, one of the reasons why we felt a sense of urgency in bringing these, this programming uh, to our community is that in the middle of this COVID crisis, uh, we are really experiencing a spike in uh, uh, in substance use disorder, in incidents involving substance use and all the comorbid things that go along with that, mental health issues, and parents that are really frustrated in trying to cope with uh, their kids who are bored, cooped up, and maybe ex- newly experimenting. Is that consistent with what you're seeing right now? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so happy that the both of you want to have this conversation. So certainly we're seeing um, an increase in just stress and emotions um, as folks are living day to day in this COVID life, but certainly families are spending more time together. And so parents are seeing much more about what's going on in the household. Um, and also substance use has increased. So certainly on the coalition side, we've seen a huge spike in alcohol-related calls, in vaping-related calls, in mental health concerns. Um, So it may be that a mom and a dad recognize that their teenager um, isn't sleeping the way that they used to or isn't communicating with them um, verbally in a way that they used to or folks are concerned about their own marriages. And so certainly we've seen an increase in substance use across the board, um, really challenging mental health concerns within the household. And some of that has led to domestic violence calls, which we've been managing as well. So absolutely you're spot on that COVID-19 has been a concern and kind of the substance use and mental health impact is a day-to-day process that we move through with folks. And I cut you off as you were starting to elaborate more in the programming. And I, and I know one of the areas that uh, you have been at the helm and, and brought in uh, people uh, that can help in these areas are, are grief counseling, as well as um, uh, other practitioners that are able to supplement and, and act as referral sources for people that we find in harm's way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So many of the folks that have called us um, do seem to be grieving. They're grieving a relationship that they've had with a family member. They're grieving this family dynamic that they thought that they had, and now maybe that's changed. Um, And managing their own mental health struggles during this time. And so we've really brought in the scope of grief. Originally, we brought in a grief counselor to support members of our community who experienced a death. And what we've really recognized is that you can be grieving and it can be a loss of a relationship or a shift in a relationship. So our grief counselor is there to provide that immediate support. Um, And the chaplaincy piece has been really interesting too. Um, many of us experience a spiritual life and may not be associated with a religious community. And so how can we hold space for spirituality in a really challenging time? And the chaplain has been able to really support us in that. Um, which has been really wonderful. We also have a contract with Wayside Youth Services in Milford, and they do an incredible amount of work with trauma. And so we're able to connect with them on the mental health clinical side. So if there's something that really goes beyond our scope of practice or expertise, we're able to connect with that clinical program and refer someone and know that they're getting excellent services. 
I, 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 can I just jump in? I just Please. wanted to speak um, in just in listening. I know it's going to be addressed. I know through um, what Michelle is going to be saying, but when you sp- when we speak about substance use, we often forget about alcohol and, and the statistics now, I was just looking at it. They said the jump from uh, alcohol use from January to March has increased by purchases by 300%. Um, and what, as an, as an educator, um, what I look at too is this whole thing of trauma, you know, and then the trauma as it early that that ch- childhood trauma, and that along the way, if it isn't addressed, um, that it leads to all these things that we can do a lot of um, prevention early on. But my concern now is the trauma that some of these young kids are facing in their families as they watch their parents struggling with mental health. They watch domestic violence around them. They, they, they are dealing with their own social isolation. So that's why having these conversations is so important is to say, okay, you're not alone. You're dealing with this. And I know these are the things you're talking about, but that I just wanted to, to say thank you everyone for being here and, and bringing this attention out there because it's, it's, it, it's such an important issue when we know that the fallout when these kids come back um, to school and, and what we're going to be dealing with down the line. So for importantly, that, yeah. I do want to right at the outset, uh, let you know that you can reach uh, the safe coalition and Jen Knight in particular at 508-488-8105. That's our support line. You will find that you are not alone, uh, mm-hmm. that you're met where you're at and that there will be uh, whatever you're, particular issue is you'll find a lot of support. And Jen, a lot of that support comes in group settings, right? We have uh, adjunct support Mm -hmm. groups. Can you talk a little bit about the type of support that we offer? Yeah, I I would love to. So we do, we have found so often that there's strength in community support. And so we've really structured much of the coalition around community groups. So um, we have a host of programs that we run and that we partner with. We have a learn to cope group that meets on Monday nights. Right now, all these groups meet on Zoom. We have a grandparents raising grandchildren group. We have a high school peer-to-peer group. Um, There is a parents group on Saturday mornings, a 12-step group for parents who have a loved one who's moving through addiction that meets on Wednesdays. Um, And then we also do have one-on-one counseling and support, which is wonderful. Um, And certainly, if someone calls, we do try to match them up with someone who has has lived experience appear as well. Right. And, you know, again, uh, it's nothing somebody should do alone, is it? And when I say it, if you're a loved one of somebody struggling with substance use disorder, that's kind of where I'm focused right now. Um, it's, it's, as you mentioned, you've got grieving, you've got loss, you've got trauma, you've got questions. Uh, and, there, and, and you really need to know there's a whole community ready and willing and able to help Certainly. So often we associate talking about talking with others about things that are going on in our lives with all the celebratory things, Um, whether it means that we're celebrating our child's soccer win that afternoon or it's a holiday or a birthday. And it's always really challenging to be vulnerable and say what's really going on. And something that I've shifted in my conversations with folks since COVID is instead of starting the conversation with how are you, I'm starting with We've had many calls. You're not alone. Mm-hmm. We've talked to this many parents this week on the same topic. Because while it takes so much courage to make a phone call, it takes so much more courage to keep that conversation going. And so reminding parents that if they're reaching out, it's because they love their child and they care about their child or they care about themselves and their family. And 
while this is so hard, they aren't alone. And, and allowing folks to meet um, and talk or hear others talk about what's going on has been so healing and, and fulfilling, um, which is, is kind of the feedback we're getting. And as an educator, I know you can appreciate it. One of the things that I really appreciate about the style of um, support that Jen offers is oftentimes she'll meet parents, frustrated parents, as you can imagine, right? Mm-hmm. With the vaping or marijuana use. And these are real concerns and people are really traumatized about them. And she has a really unique way of focusing the conversation on styles of communication mm-hmm. so that we don't, Jen, draw battle lines, right? That instead we work on collaborative solutions. Do I kind of have that? Absolutely. Well, you know, if we think of this big picture, a family was there before the safe coalition and this family is going to be there after this coalition. And so we want to help a family not only through this one challenging moment in their life, but also recognize how to have healing and supportive conversations. Um, Typically when a family member calls, it's when things are not going well. um, And it could be with an adolescent. And those are some of the most vulnerable times in a family anyway. And so how do you build up a conversation um, and still host a relationship with your child um, during a really tough moment within your family dynamic life? I think the way Jen framed it too is it's it's this whole idea of you're not alone, and dealing with the stigma it, and 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 the way you framed it, it's the courage to to make the phone call and to have the conversation because you care so much about your kids and the the way that people know when they call and reach out for help how they're going to be treated with such gentleness and respect and to be just reassured you're not alone and we're going to do everything we can to help and support you and not to be afraid to do it. And I think that's the message that you're clearly getting out today. That's what I feel. So, you know, it's important. Yeah. And again, people can reach out to the Safe Coalition at 508-488-8105. And Jen, uh, can you give the email address? Sure. Info at safecoalitionma.org. That's M-A, like mass, info at safecoalitionma.org. Of course, we're on Facebook, and we do have a presence on other social media like Twitter. And um, Jen, um, in addition to the work that we do within our offices and the support, we're also very involved in the community, um, the Substance Abuse Task Force, Franklin Substance Abuse Task Force that I've worked, had the pleasure of working on with Anne. Uh, and chaired the committee that brought about that great book, The, the Ride Home. But there's really good synergy and, and work going on up there. What are some of the other community partnerships that we that we have? Sure. So certainly we've connected with local businesses um, in the nine communities that we are closely connected with. Um, we're also really close with the district attorney's office. They have a task force. There's also an adolescent mental health task force through the Norfolk County Sheriff's Department that we're a part of, um, as well as the Metro West um, Coalition. And so through those connections, um, we really are able to broaden and deepen our understanding of what other communities are are moving through and also how we can learn and share from each other um, because this is really challenging work. And so if an, if something is working really well in another community, we want to be able to hear from them how it's, how it started um, and, you know, maybe take some lessons. Mm-hmm. Jen, if I, if I'm sitting at home listening and I, and I'm frightened for somebody's safety right now. So mm-hmm. we'll go right to the, you know, we certainly have the, the marijuana and the vaping use and, and those types of issues, but we also deal with the other end of the spectrum, which is someone who maybe has gone on to 
um, harder substances, heroin, cocaine, uh, maybe it's alcohol and it's you know, benzodiazepine, all sorts of drugs. What should a parent know, particularly in this day and age, uh, if they're dealing with somebody that they feel is at risk? I think echoing the message that we've been sending already that you're not alone mm-hmm. and that the concern that you have with your child is probably worse than you know. And also not addressing it is not going to help you or that person. And so getting help as soon as possible, whether that means reaching out to your doctor, reaching out to the safe coalition, um, reaching out to their school, if they're in school, um, you know, we just want to make sure that folks aren't suffering at home alone. Um, and certainly there's support that we can provide, um, you know, with the, with the person impacted and the person who's calling about for support. Sometimes just from some of the families that I've talked with, a, a young person or could be a parent refuses to get help. In other words, they say, don't, um, but you know they're a danger to themselves or others, that there's, there's something there's, is there still, is there a stigma about calling the police? Is, the, is someone going to get in trouble if they reach out because, because the parent doesn't know what to do or a family member doesn't know what to do if it's, if it's a partner, spouse, or is, how are the police going to handle it if, if, a, if a parent or family member can't? Because I think that's important. They, they won't call because they say, I don't want my family member to get in trouble, you know, can, is there any reassurance there with that or? Yeah. Well, I think that you raise a wonderful point because while parents love their children so much and they want to get them that support, right. maybe going towards the, the police direction for real intense support is really mm-hmm. scary. Um, so through the coalition, we've made unbelievable partnerships with the school systems and with the police departments. And some of the police departments have a clinical social worker working within the department. Mm-hmm. So in a situation like that, we would talk with the family and explain that it doesn't have to be a call to 911. It can be a call to talk with the social worker who works with the police. And we can do this in a very different style, get this person's support. Um, or a police department, and I'm sure Michelle can speak to this, Mm. has officers who are trained in mental health care and support. And so depending on the community that the person is coming from, we'd share what those local resources are, and we'd aid and assist them in making the calls to the appropriate folks. So it's not like you're calling 911 and someone is coming in and being taken in custody um, for their mental health or substance use concerns. So I think through collaboration and partnerships, we've really been able to shift how this looks in real time. And also the police departments and school systems have been so willing to learn and work together mm-hmm. with us to really mitigate the trauma and harm that can be done within those transitions. And speaking of uh, police departments mm-hmm. and people that are willing to learn and communicate and help, uh, that's a perfect segue for Michelle Palladini. Uh, again, detective, school resource officer, community policing champion, um, mm-hmm. and kind of a thought leader in the area of community policing and mindfulness and other practices that are bringing uh, mental health both to uh, police officers and bringing uh, great mental health to our uh, constituents. Um, Michelle, I, I wanted to give you a chance to comment on what Jen and, and Ann were just talking about. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, we have come leaps and bounds mm-hmm. with respect to police response to folks who are experiencing 
any range of behaviors that are you know caused by having substance use disorder and while we can't turn a blind eye to things that are you know criminal in nature there's there's things that we're doing so maybe it's you know we have to manage a situation if it is a true emergency there or there is something that's happening and, and let's just say it's somebody who's driving under the influence or you know they've committed a crime while under the influence you know yes do we address that certainly but there's other avenues that we can go with that once it gets into the hands of the court. So maybe we work with our local court, which we do, and we collaborate on the best way to get this person maybe, you know, doing something a little bit different. So instead of, you know, bringing something to a trial, we're looking at, you know, getting this person into treatment because that's the goal at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And for the calls that don't concern anything that's, you know, criminal in nature, and they're just the concerned parent, or, you know, we have somebody walking down the street who's kind of stumbling, and, you know, they don't rise to the level of emergency level care. That's when we are networking and calling the Safe Coalition or calling some of our mental health partners so that we can get that person some help and some treatment. And just as Jen said, we have um, almost every police department within the safe coalition catchment area has taken the um, what we call the one mind campaign and this was something that was brought down from the international association of chiefs of police and it's basically a pledge that the agency takes to train a certain percentage of their officers in crisis intervention and so what that looks like is there are several officers within each agency that are trained to handle crises and to network with the mental health providers, to network with the SAFE Coalition, to help kind of be that liaison between a family or a person struggling with a really non-judgmental eye. And I really love that Anne opened this up by saying, you know, the, the word compassion, because I think that's really mm-hmm. where we've headed in terms of law enforcement, that it's no more this kind of theory or philosophy or, you know, kind of worldview that people with substance disorders are, you know, kind of like living homeless in an alley, right? They're, they're moms, their dads, their brothers, mm-hmm. their daughters, you know, they're people, you know, related to us, you know, in law enforcement, it may even be a law enforcement officer, right? So it's, you know, there's the stigma slowly dropping. Mm-hmm. And to see that happen, you know, in my tenure as an officer in the last 15 years has been really, um, uh, honestly, a miracle. It's been incredible to witness. Michelle, is it me or did this change fairly rapidly over the past five or six years? I mean, it's been a real quick uh, learning curve, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and I think it, it coincided with the, when we kind of coined it, the opioid crisis, right? right? When that really kind of hit Massachusetts really hard, those of us in, in this area uh, realized that, again, we can't arrest our way out of these problems, right? And we can't just keep sending people to the hospital to be evaluated for mental health when it, it, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Is it mental health? Is it substance abuse? It's somewhere in the middle. It's probably both somewhere. And so we're trying to figure out creative ways that we can get people the help and really not criminalizing, you know, a, a disease, you know, and, and that's been, it's been awesome to witness. If you're just tuning in, I want to remind you, we are speaking with the Safe Coalition today. We've got Jen Knight, the Executive Director. Jen Knight Levine, sorry, Jen. Um, Ann Bergen, uh, my co-host and co-collaborator. And Michelle Palladini, School Resource Officer, Detective, Mindfulness Person, and also uh, on the Board of Directors of the Safe Coalition. Uh, you can reach out to the Safe Coalition for assistance at 508-488-8105 or email 
at info at Safe Coalition, M as in Mary, A as in Apple, dot org. And uh, Michelle, you have been practicing mindfulness for a long time in the arena of um, both professional police work, training them, as well as, as yourself. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of mindfulness uh, in, in what we're talking about? Sure. Mental health it's, and it, substance use disorder. Yeah, it's, it's all related, isn't it? And I think we've, similar to kind of what we were just discussing with the you know, crisis that's kind of um, really bubbled to the surface with people who are struggling I think the same is true for mindfulness, which is kind of interesting. You know, mindfulness is now this, this buzzword that everybody's kind of talking about it. And do we actually know what mindfulness is? I think everybody has kind of an idea of what mindfulness might be. And if we kind of uh, zoom out and look at mindfulness as an umbrella term, you know, there's so many things that fall under that. Uh, it's not just about meditation. It's not just about yoga. It's also about a way of life. It's about simplifying. It's about reconnecting with yourself. It's finding who you are authentically. It's about managing all of your thoughts and your emotions and not trying to dismiss them, but realizing that we're all going to have ups and downs. There's not one person on this Zoom call in my household, <laughs> at my police agency, right? None of us are living you know, these these lives that, you know, just kind of are even, right? There's always ups and there's downs. And I think the, the sooner we start practicing sort of this non-judgment uh, kind of awareness with ourselves, the quicker we're able to have that kind of compassion and empathy for other people because we realize how much we are the same. And that's really kind of what has been the basis of um, my interest and in my work with not only uh, the law enforcement side, but those um, who are civilians or those who struggle with substance use or children who are kind of growing up in this world where everything is very fast paced. You know, the stress for kids is very high today. You know, most parents are all working. We have a lot of single parent households. And so it, it's different today and indifferent doesn't mean bad. It's just different. And uh, so kind of that's really how I got involved with mindfulness was uh, simply because when I was a younger person, I didn't really develop those tools for this kind of social emotional health that we're now teaching to our kids today. And I'm sure people listening and, and those of us on this call can think back to our sort of formal schooling or our upbringing. And I love my parents dearly, but there was like, if you're going to cry, I'm going to give you something to cry about. Right? Was, it was not, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and that's okay. You know, we, we learn, we evolve, we know more, we, we do better and, and that's okay. And so for me, it was really kind of learning at a later age and I'm talking my early to mid twenties and I'm thankful that I figured it out at that age, but I started practicing mindfulness and just really kind of looking at my life non-judgmentally. And that's what mindfulness teaches us is to be present and to have this sort of lens of kindness and curiosity to our everyday experience. And, you know, with that did come more contemplative practices for me. And I think we're really starting to look at meditation and yoga as no longer sort of like for the hippies, right? It's, it's a practice that's being used in therapeutic settings. It's being used in schools. It's being used for pain management and pain clinics. So there's so much that is kind of come mainstream with mindfulness and contemplative practices. And the data is really there. We're mm -hmm. starting to see ways that it's from a neuroscience perspective, mindfulness is literally changing the brain. 
So it's it's kind of incredible. Michelle, can I just ask a, a quick question on this? I was thinking when you it, looking at what's happening right now in so many homes, you know, you look at um, social isolation and all those things that are leading to depression and anxiety, um, suicidal ideation in some instances. Mm-hmm. The first thing that that people do with all of these uncomfortable feelings is reach for a substance, whether it's alcohol, sometimes it's food. Um, so I'm experiencing these feelings, depression, anxiety. It's an awful feeling. And I want to reach for something. What do you tell those people? Because we understand they're feeling all those emotions. Mm-hmm. What do you tell them right now? What are things that we could be saying to them to say, you don't have to do that when you're dealing with this? Can you help us with that? Because I think that would go such a long way with um, people. If you could yeah, share a I, little. Sure. I think Jen and I can both answer that, Jen, with yeah. her clinical background um, as well. So I think that, you know, first and foremost, telling people that the way that they're feeling is normal. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really the most important message, first and foremost, because again, when we believe that we shouldn't be feeling a certain way, that's when we use something to self-medicate. It's like, oh, I shouldn't be having these feelings of boredom, anger, frustration, sadness, so I'm going to make myself feel better. And we can kind of pull that back to the brain and we can look at, you know, from the kind of the neurology perspective, like our brains are in fight or flight when we're feeling those emotions. And what does the brain want? Well, it immediately wants something that's going to make it feel better because we want to get to that sort of comforting, soothing part of the brain. And unfortunately for, for many folks, that is usually something that's probably not so healthy. And whether it's alcohol or a drug or, you know, a, a poor relationship with somebody else or food, right? There's so many things in the spectrum that we use. So it's really about kind of having that go-to list of healthy coping mechanisms mm-hmm. that, you know, we're teaching to children, you know, ways to, you know, health uh, cope with things in a healthy way. But we as adults don't often follow the same That's advice, right. you know, and, and we all fall into that. Myself as a parent, I don't have all the answers, you know, and it's, you know, we, we run into that for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I listen to you and you talk about evolving, Right. I mean, the way it always was isn't the way it needs to be or should be. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the good old days aren't always the good old days. And, and I, I reflect back to uh, when I was bringing my kids up, what a different philosophy it was. You just ground them. If there are any of these problems, just ground them. And Jen, mm-hmm. you um, recently, very recently educated me uh, along these lines. And I picked it up about the vaping. Uh, when you recognize vaping for what Michelle just categorized it as, which is, you know, filling a void, mm. right? And that's what you start doing. But secondarily, you're pumping so much nicotine into yourself. It's also a legitimate and real addiction. And so here I'm thinking, well, I know what you do if you find a kid vaping. You ground them and take it away from them and search them every day. And not even recognizing the powerful pathways that have been worn into the brain relative to how they're soothing themselves. We're not even addressing that underlying issue or the addiction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I find when you speak to people along those lines, I, I find myself in just getting this education. I think it's really important. Another thing you said, Michelle, what you're really talking about is telling our kids and adults alike that they're in a strength position when they raise their hand and ask for help. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of community and, and, and creating pathways for people to be able to do that? 
Yeah, I think that's that's really the basis of what we're doing with SAFE is really creating these dynamics where you're welcomed and it doesn't matter what your background is and it doesn't matter what you do for a job or if you have a family or if you don't or if you know you lost custody of your children right I mean there's there's so many things and it comes back to that idea of sameness we um, there's a saying in I believe it's a saying in AA but it's terminal uniqueness yes and it's right and it's the idea that like you're the only one with problems <laughs> like and you know, Charlie, the, I before mean, you start speaking you should hear my problems Here's <laughs> Exactly. And I think, you know, substance use or not, like, I think we all fall into that, like, oh, nobody feels the way that I'm feeling or like I have it worse during quarantine Mm -hmm. than everybody else, you know, and that's a very human way to feel. But when we start to peel back those layers and when we are in community with other people, we see how much we are the same. And, you know, I, I often look at, you know, people that I have the unfortunate experience of arresting, you know, they'll say, you don't get it. And, and maybe I don't get their exact circumstance, but I can also remember a time that I felt completely defeated or I felt that I had no way out. And so I can share that with them, right, in a, in a sort of level of empathy that I, maybe I don't relate to the specific experience, but I relate to the emotion. And that's what being in community is all about, you know, from my perspective. Michelle, you recently launched a new program and you had your first successful uh, program in uh, last week via Zoom. Can you talk a little bit about the programming through SAFE? Yeah, I think uh, to speak for all of us, I think we're excited to bring uh, more in the way of, you know, kind of the social emotional support. And again, coming back to, I, I always feel like I'm a salesperson for mindfulness. Right? <laughs> mindfulness is everything. Though. Well, um, wear it well. <laughs> <laughs> but if we kind of, again, you take that umbrella and we look at ways that we through SAFE can support children through mindfulness-based practices or stress reduction tech. Let's take the word mindfulness completely out of it. Maybe we are teaching stress reduction techniques. Maybe we are teaching um, techniques for emotional regulation so that our kids don't resort to those unhealthy and risky behaviors. And that really was the basis of the presentation uh, that I had offered through SAFE uh, last Friday. Um, I believe it was Friday. It was Friday, right? Yeah. I think so. Um, but it was teaching parents ways that they can use mindfulness practices and skills to sort of help their kids manage their emotions when they are struggling. Because we know, just like, you know, Anne had just said, you know, what is an adult to do when, or, or a young person, when they want to reach for that drink? You know, what, what else is there? And, um, you know, I think these things that we can offer to parents, and and we had some really good dialogue in in the meeting, just really talking about ways parents could not only support their kids' emotional health, but to give them some of those tools. And then the hope is that the parents also kind of adopt some of those as well, because, and I know, Anne, this is what you're getting at. I mean, Mm -hmm. you look at our sort of cultural norms, and, you know, it's like you have a hard day, like, go home and have a glass of wine or have a beer. And um, unfortunately, you know, that's not always the best example to be setting for our children. And again, it it comes with the culture. There's no judgment here. It's everybody falls into that, but it's just being mindful of what choices, you know, you're, you're making because our children are watching and (laughs) they're always watching and what kind of, um, what are we setting up for them? Like what foundation are we laying? Are we modeling resilience for them as well? So that we have a crappy day at work, 
you know, we come home and maybe we go out for a walk or we go out to the garden or what, you know, whatever your kind of thing is. And so that's kind of part of the education piece that we're now offering through SAFE is not only providing those skills to the kids, and we were actually going to start a teen mindfulness group right before COVID happens, um, but we're going to get that back. So that's going to be one. And then we're also looking, Jen and I are actually going to be doing a conversation to support parents who are struggling, um, who have a child, whether it's a you know teenager or an adult child, really struggling with their own self-care and their own mental health. And so we're going to be offering some suggestions to parents as well. And then the final program that I am really excited about because I just finished my certification is Yoga for 12-Step Recovery. Oh, and great. yeah, it's exciting. So this is a, a it's a well-established program. Um, in addition to my own um, yoga teacher training, which I actually just graduated from to teach, you know, adults, which <laughs> is exciting. Um, I kind of layered on an additional training. So um, for folks who are interested, the website is y12sr.org. So it's yoga. y12sr.com? Uh, dot com. Yep. And so they uh, are a, you know, established uh, program where they kind of blend the sort of 12 step program. So that cognitive piece of recovery with the somatic approach of yoga. So really getting into the body, sort of having that embodied experience of healing, because there's more than we'd have time for to talk about how yoga is therapeutic. And regardless of your spiritual beliefs, you know, Yoga is a practice that can be done by anybody, and it's a very kind of secular-based model, um, sort of akin to the 12-step program that whatever your higher power is, then that's what you're using. And, and so mm -hmm. the two blend very well together. It was a fascinating training, and I'm really, it's really exciting. excited to get it going. Yeah, I, I am too, Michelle. And I, I want to speak directly to parents um, and loved ones. Um, recovery is not limited to those that are suffering from substance use disorder. And the first time I heard this, I bristled. I thought, how dare somebody say, Jim, you need recovery. Mm -hmm. But I think we all need to do what you said earlier, and that's kind of level the playing field and say, we all need recovery from something. So let's drop the ego a little bit, Jim, and, and let's, let's uh, realize that there are some dynamics that were set off in your family that are not terminally unique, they happen with incredible precision, repetitively, with almost every family I speak with. Just change the exact details, but the dynamic is the same, okay? There's enabling behaviors, there's trauma, there's, there's depression. The, I'm speaking of family members now that they experience mm -hmm. grieving. Uh, and there's just tremendous forces at play that I can speak as a parent, I just completely ignored and couldn't understand why my own mental health and physical health was suffering. And sadly for me, my family was suffering because mm -hmm. I was suffering. So my relationships were suffering. Happily for me, I found a solution. And my solution happens to be working a 12-step program. I, I, I attend the uh, Road to Recovery with other parents that are, um, that are on their own journeys. And we find out we're not terminally unique and we have stories to share. So I, I just offer that because I meet so many parents that are so relieved when they find out they're not alone. And, you know, that's really the goal. You know, we're all, we're all in this together. And, um, and I want to encourage those people to 
see themselves as people that need their own recovery. And if you're stubborn like me and you won't do it for yourself, do it for your family and the people you love, because I promise you, you won't regret it. And one of those stepping stones can be the why, the why, sorry, the yoga for recovery, the 12 step <laughs> yoga program. Yes, it can be why 12 SR. It can be just reaching out and calling us and have, we'll meet you wherever you're at uh, in terms of support. Um, but I just wanted to offer that. And Michelle, so how do people reach Michelle Palladini and follow you and get your newsletter and your videos and everything sure. else? Sure. Uh, it's pretty easy. It's just michellepalladini.com. <laughs> and well, all my easy. contact information is there. Um, and I, I have Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. So just search my name. You'll find me. But um, yeah, I try and just share, again, these tools that all of us need. So, yeah. and I think uh, we should also mention that safe is sending out a wonderful newsletter and maybe Jen, you can just talk about that as Thank well. You. I wanted to mention that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as life and COVID have shifted kind of the work that we do in the way that we're able to communicate with folks, uh, we're not seeing everyone um, through our doors at the coalition office giving hugs and sending well wishes. And so we wanted a way to be able to connect with our community. So we started a new newsletter and that sent out once a month. And that has things that are going on with the coalition, things that are coming up, um, and typically program highlights. So we sent one program, one newsletter out already, and we'll send the next one out at the end of the month and we'll be highlighting um, the Franklin High School scholarship winner, um, our associate director of program services, other programs that Michelle has been doing, um, and really the life and times of the coalition um, as we're kind of in our own in our own homes right now. Yeah, so please subscribe to that. And before we go, I wanted to ask you, um, and this kept coming up in my mind, um, you are the school committee chair for the town of Franklin. You've also been uh, in uh, teaching and administration for the schools for years. And I'm just curious, what are the unique challenges relative to the mental health and substance use and social emotional health that, that the school committees wrestling with right now or the schools are wrestling in light of the COVID crisis? Well, it's sort of everything we, we've kind of talked about here. You know, it's it's dealing with, particularly for adolescents, it's that social isolation. They so need to be connected, you know, and and again, um, it's the, the family situations that these kids are, are living in that sometimes are um, just really unbearable, you know, and, and so we're very, very worried about that and we don't know what's going to happen and, and what's going to happen in the fall and what schools are going to look like. But one of the things I was going to um, follow up on and ask, and it might be because you guys are the experts on all this, but, and I know Jen has talked a lot about the adverse childhood experiences and, and the idea that if we can intervene really early, maybe we can do a lot more to prevent this down the line in terms of mental health issues. I'm just wondering from your guys' expertise, how do we begin to, to talk about that with parents so that, that they know the signs of um, childhood sexual um, abuse, which is rampant, rampant by, and it's what 90 something percent of that is happening by a family member. It is not a stranger. So you look at that situation is going on in the household and now we're in a situation where there's no freedom from it. There's no, that's just one thing. We know that um, marital discord is another thing that causes such trauma in kids. We know that if there's um, any kind of emotional neglect that's going on. I'm wondering if, how do we, 
how do we start having those conversations so that parents can recognize the signs? It's like Jim was saying, they get their own help for their own issues so that they, they begin to understand that everything that they do, the traumatic impact that it has on their kids. How do we, how do we get that conversation going? I don't know. It seems like we, it's, it's difficult to bring it up in school. You know, how do we, how do we start to, 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 to get educate parents about that? So we're getting in on a much earlier age, so we can prevent some of these things along the line that turn into all of these issues with self-soothing and anxiety and depression and the issues that we're seeing rampant in schools today, in communities, not schools, in the community. We keep thinking this is a school issue. It's not a school issue, it's a community issue. Yet the schools tend to be the ones and the safe coalition that are expected to solve it all, you know, so, but I didn't know if, if you can speak to that, how do, we, how do we take that on or should we or, you know, help me with that one. I need help. So I'm so happy that you brought ACEs up. Michelle. Yeah, I know that's your, that's it something is. you, well, <laughs> it's, it's so important. Uh, Michelle and I have talked about ACEs a lot yeah. because we both in our professional lives have worked with adolescents and adults who have been drastically impact, impacted by physical trauma, sexual assault, yeah. um, neglect, and so how do we manage this and recognize it so that it can be mitigated later on? Um, and so I don't think that there's a direct easy answer, um, but I can say that we at the coalition um, have started conversations around ACEs. So um, we have had a few calls from um, parents since COVID, so since March, the middle of March, um, that call with really complex concerns about their child. They may call and say, hey, my kid's vaping. I found a vape in their bedroom when I was cleaning. And then on the fifth call, we hear a lot more. Well, when they were seven or eight in the neighborhood, something happened. Yeah, there you go. And yeah. so then we that opens the door to, so let's talk a little bit about that. There was a study that came out of California and with 10 questions, they're really sensitive questions. We may be able to get a bit more information and that can help us get you the best style of clinical support. Um, that could even mean having someone go to a male versus a female therapist right, depending on what that trauma looks like, or them not sitting alone in a doctor's office. So one of the programs that we were about to launch with the coalition was a vaping cessation program that is evidence-based from Stanford. And the first hour of that program, students would come in and take ACEs, and we met meet so with the people, the, I'm sorry, meet with the caregivers, so parents or grandparents that afternoon to kind of go over and review what this looks like for their child. Um, is that a perfect solution? I don't know yet, but is it a start? Oh, Absolutely. Boy, that is... Um, so I think that ACEs is a beautiful, wonderful tool that we can utilize and figuring out how to best utilize that in our communities is crucial um, because a lot of the information that comes out of that has a lot of trauma associated with it. Absolutely. And so making sure that if a child takes ACEs and a caregiver receives the information, that child then isn't more harmed. That's right. That's right, Jen. Yeah. So just really being sensitive to to how we honor ACEs and how we move through it. Um, but I think it starts with the first step. And yeah. so that's educating parents on what ACEs is, uh, what the outcome looks like, and would they be open to moving through and learning more about it um, to get their child the best services. And that it may reflect something within their own family or themselves that they wanna get more support for. So again, we're not blaming anyone. Let's figure out how we can work together. Yeah. 
with these results. I'm sure, Michelle, you have more to say about that too. Yeah, absolutely. There's, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, the majority of folks we see who are struggling uh, as adults, <laughs> we know that there are things that happen in their childhood and ACEs really allows us to connect the dots backwards mm -hmm. and really see ways in which children were harmed, you know, not just uh, physically or sexually, but also emotionally and sort of what factors have led them to have, have these behaviors now. And so really having that close eye and, and a good pulse on your own community. And really, I think the other piece too is really educating our educators and our coaches and really thinking outside the box That's there it. because it's not just our teachers. It's anyone who is involved with a child in any capacity you know, the music teacher, the, you know, outside, you know, art teacher and things like that. And I'm always surprised in my profession when I do respond to an incident of, of child assault and something has happened that there were people in the child's life that just they didn't know. They didn't know to report that something just seemed kind of off or they didn't like the relationship that the child had. So I think we have a lot of work to do on educating everybody who are essentially mandated reporters that don't even know they're mandated mm -hmm. reporters. Jim, uh, Jim, I was going to ask you a question. If, 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 if we're thinking maybe about a future program, I was wondering about the possibility when I listened to you is, could we gear one program talking just to adolescents? You know, that we talk to them about what they must be going through now, what they're feeling, um, and maybe we bring a high school counselor on too with you two and, you know, and. Absolutely. And I think Jen's experience with the high school peer to peer group. She's is just, a good I mean, example. they're both incredible. I mean, what, right? because kids will connect with them. They'll listen to them. And it's that soothing voice of compassion. Yes. And to say when you, you, they hear that. And it's again, like Michelle was saying, you, you know, we've been saying, you're not alone. You know, right. these feelings you're that you're feeling, this is what you're going to be feeling. This is how you might want to deal with it. These are things you, but if we talk directly to them, you know, I think that we can find a way. I think and as someone who hasn't, doesn't have the experience that you guys have working with kids and, and children and adolescents and young men and women, um, I, I don't think I, I think I sold them short a long time for a long mm -hmm. time, about what they're hungry for, what they're yeah. capable of and their emotional intelligence. Yeah. Um, as I look at what has come out of this high school peer-to-peer -peer group, the letters that Jen got uh, from many of these students brought me to tears. I, these yeah. are these they're having incredible experiences, and they are they are already thinking about this. They are yeah. looking for help. Yeah. Uh, in in most cases, wouldn't you guys say? Am I right on that? Yeah, I, I, you know, peer to peer started four years ago, and it the focus was to get kids talking about substance use, um, and it was mainly made up of kids that were friends and just wanted to put another extracurricular on their their um, their college transcript, and in four years that group has drastically changed to to kids who are living with active uh, substance use concerns in their households. And uh, a myth that I continue to have conversations with folks about is that you could have the top 10% kids at peer-to-peer -peer and you never know what goes on behind the closed door of their household. That's it. That's it. Um, two, years, uh, two or three years ago, we had um, a, an attendee of peer-to-peer -peer, and this person was top 3% of her class, 
unbelievable athlete, went to school on a sports scholarship, and she shared something, and the entire group of folks were brought to tears because they've known her since sixth grade Mm -hmm. and had no idea that these situations were going on in her house. Um, And so I never want to underestimate how crucial it is for high schoolers to talk about feelings and then how crucial it is that our responsibility is helping them recognize and manage those. So the program that we use to manage and support social emotional wellness is the Why Try program. Um, And that is a program um, that was developed um, by a gentleman out of Utah who was in the foster care system and he struggled with dyslexia and just all of the ACEs concerns. Um, And so for his PhD, um, which is I think less than 0.5% of foster youth in America get their masters, let alone their PhD, um, he created a 10 manual program um, that really focuses on social emotional wellness and breaking down those barriers and really knowing who to plug into when you need specific styles Mm -hmm. of support to move on with your life. Just just in talking to the the kids um, who are graduating, you know, the seniors, and, and these are the kids who, you know, have kind of had this really wonderful experience in high school. They're devastated that they, everything that they've lost, you know, they go, and these are, you know, these are the kids that are sort of emotionally very healthy and, all, and they are devastated, you know, so you just know what, you know, what kids are going through. And one of the other thing, messages sometimes I always want to get across to, to kids is they're always told, High school is the best time of your life. You know, for a lot of kids, it isn't. And, and there's nothing wrong with them because it isn't. They may be late bloomers or, and something, something to reassure them that this isn't the end of it all for them. Some of them view high school life like that or middle school like that. That's, anyway, so I, I just think these conversations are so crucial. And I think it, if that's something we could do. I, I think people are, are looking for that type of thing. I can tell you, I had the worst experience at Needham High School. <laughs> It wasn't Needham High School's fault, but I was, I just, I couldn't stand high school and then college was fantastic. So, but I think that's so true. And we, we come up with these isms, if you will, you know, these, these phrases and, and uh, I can only imagine being 16, 17 years old saying, I'm I'm miserable right now. I thought this was supposed to be the time. But it's so intensified by social media, you know, when I was growing up, right. I never, I would have been, I mean, I was a wreck anyway, but never mind if social media existed. It's like, Right, but I mean, yeah, no, I, I I can empathize with you, <laughs> and now more than ever, and these kids are having real losses. I mean, I've yeah, got my son now; true. he's upstairs. He just finished his first year of engineering. Um, didn't expect to be at home finishing it, but he says to me all the time, he says, "Dad, what about the, these kids that are trying to graduate Franklin High School, mm-hmm. and everything's canceled, or the the kid that finally makes a sports team and the season canceled?" Um, so these are real losses, and we need to count them that way. Yeah. That's you it. Know? I just think it's it just opens up so many more doors for conversation. So I, I'm excited about that because the need is just it's so real and out there in terms of mental health and substance use, and it truly is epidemic. You know that's why the Safe Coalition is so important. And like I can't say now more than ever, I think you know just. And as Ann mentioned, this is the first of a series of programs. Um, it sounds like we're going to have many more programs than we originally uh, conceived of. I, I really appreciate your time, to, uh, Jen Knight-Levine and Michelle Palladini of uh, the Safe Coalition. Great conversation. Thank you, Ann. 
for this. For Thank the you, Jim. And for, for the collaboration. And again, to remind everybody that uh, if you need help, uh, substance abuse, mental health, uh, just have questions. There's, there's no question too small. Uh, no, the only bad question is the one you don't ask. So please give us a call, 508-488-8105. You can email us at info at safecoalitionm, as in Mary, A as in Apple, dot org. And we are there for you. Uh, we will continue with this series of programs. Stay tuned next week. Same time, same bat channel. So for my co-host, Ian Bergen, my name is Jim Derrick saying thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. 